This is David Mage. And this is Amanda Frankel. And this is Bass Slayer. This is our second podcast. Uh, last week we had Sean Wilkinson from Storage, and this week we have an amazing one-hour uh, webinar that we hosted about a week ago with five well-respected investors and practitioners in the crypto asset space. So the webinar was focused on making sense of the volatility in crypto markets. Um, you know, given recently that we've seen um, crashes, subsequent recoveries, and sideways markets, we thought it would be great to have um, some of the top leaders in the space give their opinions on what they think is going to happen next. I thought it was really interesting hearing discussions about capitulation and about kind of what's happening with some of the the dexes out there. What did you find really interesting? So I think the thing that was most interesting for me is, you know, when we hear from a lot of people in crypto, we tend to feel like a lot of people are kind of echoing the same sentiments. Um, and there was, I wouldn't call it conflict, but there's a lot of uh, dissenting opinion in this discussion. And I think it led itself to a more nuanced view. You know, there's there's not this singular view that crypto vol is going to continue. We're going to crash to the bottom. Um, yeah, I think there was also some really good conversations about valuation and about techniques that we're trying to come up with to be able to value the assets that are currently in the market right now. I'm still trying to figure that out. I know you're trying to figure that out on a daily basis. It's it's kind of an evolving uh, narrative out there. So, you know, it, it was a really interesting conversation, I think, for family offices and other institutional investors that are trying to determine and discern what's happening in the asset space right now. It's a great way for them to hear from really great people. And uh, hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, be on the lookout. Uh, we're going to do this podcast on a weekly basis, and we'll have uh, some great uh, people coming into the podcast to talk about foundational um, pieces of the crypto asset space and also some other fellow investors. Um, that's about it. As always, please remember that nothing on this podcast is investment advice or legal advice or should be construed as such. Please do your own research. Today's family offices and hedge funds lack appropriate technology to invest confidently in digital assets. Lumina provides institutional-grade portfolio management software specifically designed for crypto, helping institutions like yours manage bookkeep and trade digital assets. Use promo code BASELAYER for three months free. Sign up at www.lumina.app. Uh, again, my name is David Nage, formerly the Managing Director of Aperon Ventures, a family office. Over the last 10 years, I have worked with three different family offices focusing on early stage 
direct investments in technologically innovative solution to some of the society's biggest problems. Over the last two years, I've spent the majority of my time in crypto assets as I view the underlying technology as one of the most potentially influential technologies of our time, able to revolutionize the way that we identify ourselves, how we hold our assets, the way we produce and ship products to fundamentally altering the way large centralized services own and profit from our digital selves. As Bob Penn, the times they are changing, crypto experienced toward growth in the latter part of 2017 with the ICO boom. Projects raised billions of dollars, predominantly with just white papers from retail investors with little to no knowledge of the asset or underlying technology, many of whom missed out in the last eight plus years of the equity bull run and wanted a chance to catch lightning in a bottle. Thousands of tokens have been put on exchanges, many claiming to be utility when they are most likely securities. From December 2017 highs, we saw a significant drop in price on publicly traded coins, whereas private deals and companies like Hedera Hashcraft raised tens of millions of dollars on multi-billion dollar valuations. Our large institutions, Fidelity, NYC ICE, TD Ameritrade, Goldman Sachs, Yale Endowment, and others begin executing plans on platform build and investments into this asset class, all while price on Bitcoin and other altcoins have dragged down. Recently, over the last two quarters, we witnessed Bitcoin stabilize and become less volatile, sitting around $6,500 to $6,000, all while the volatility in the equity markets ratcheted up. And over the last two weeks, prices began to sink on Bitcoin and other altcoins. Today's call has some of the most thoughtful investors and practitioners in the asset class today to address this recent sell-off and discuss the macro environment in crypto, providing some insights to those interested in the asset class on the recent events that have unfolded. Quick note, the content of this webinar is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Each of our presenters will have five minutes initially to provide their macro views and a quick intro of themselves. I will then provide some questions to the presenters leaving 15 minutes at the end of the Q&A for the attendees. You can submit your questions via the webinar platform anytime during the call. Additionally, there are three poll questions I will submit during this call. We will begin with Nikhil and then go on to David Gerter and then to Meltem, Travis, and Ariana. So with that, Nikhil, please kick us off. Thank you, David. Appreciate your time. I hope everyone can hear me. Uh, my name is Nikhil. Uh, I'm the head of CoVenture Crypto. And at CoVenture, we've got a number of strategies in emerging financial asset classes, venture capital, credit, and crypto. Within crypto, we've got a strategy of focusing on private funds for qualified purchasers and accredited investors that have quantitative strategies, as well as passive long-only strategies. Um, the quick take that I have on the macro sector right now is, is a handful of facts followed by a handful of con conclusions looking backwards. This is roughly the fifth time in history that Bitcoin has experienced a drawdown larger than 85%. And typically the average drawdown would need it to fall close to around 2,900 um, in order for it to hit a, a statistical bottom. That's not how we look at the market. I'm just trying to provide you a few facts here. What we've seen over the history of the cryptocurrency markets since inception is a relatively close to zero correlation to the market. However, that's masking the reality. The reality is that on a near annual basis, cryptocurrencies are uh, highly correlated to the market about 10% of the time and 90% of the time uh, using standard 90 local correlations 
uncorrelated. So what does this tell us? This tells us that this cycles from a correlated to an anti-correlated sine curve um, about once a year. And therefore you can kind of estimate where we are in the market. And right now, it just so happens, cryptocurrencies are for the first time correlated at a very high degree all year long in a market that is obviously in a bear uh, environment. What does that tell us? That tells us from a macro perspective to be cautious, but it also says that just like it's happened many, many times before, uh, that cryptocurrencies will ultimately likely be uncorrelated to where we are in the relatively near future. So that's a bit on our take. Again, we take a, a largely quantitative approach to crypto investing. Great, thank you. Uh, with that, uh, I will move to Meltem, who is on the line with us right now. Meltem has recently published a article on Medium, which is a must read, um, has a lot of experience in this asset class as well. Uh, Meltem, if you can share your, your thoughts for the next five minutes on what's happening in the macro. I would love to. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, thanks to David for organizing this wonderful call. Uh, what I'll talk about is when Akil's given some of the overview of the underlying assets like Bitcoin and other crypto assets, I want to briefly talk about a broader investment thesis. Um, if we look at the crypto market, where I began was investing in Bitcoin, which was really the only investable asset when I started working professionally in the space in 2015. And it's grown now. There are thousands of different digital currencies and digital assets that people try to model after Bitcoin, but they have different features, different functionalities. And I think what we're seeing in the market at the asset level is fundamental questions about how to value these things. Because a protocol or a software project is not a business. There's no cash flow, there's no revenues, you can't do DCF. And a lot of the investors I speak to come from the macro world or who are value investors, the Benjamin Graham style value investors, are having a challenging time reconciling how to find value to things that are highly speculative and where current prices are largely based on future expectations of how these assets and networks can be utilized. So at the asset level, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubts, a lot of questions about what people actually hold when they hold some of these things. The two other levels I wanna talk about is the networking layer. So people who are actually using electricity and silicon to run infrastructure that supports these networks, both in the crypto assets themselves, but also blockchains that are utilized for other purposes, whether within the enterprise, outside, or to create new business models altogether. And then at the application layer, where we're seeing a lot of venture capital continue to flow into the crypto and blockchain space, really my thesis on the next five years ahead is crypto is going through a maturing. We are realizing that a lot of the things that were capitalized over the last few years were capitalized at valuations that were very far from the actual value being created. Investors in this macro environment of broader deleveraging and unwinding are asking themselves, do I really want exposure to something so speculative? And is there really yield there long-term? So to me, the investment thesis for coin shares for the next five years is on the asset side, we're gonna focus on assets that have a proven track record of operating. So Bitcoin has existed for 10 years. Every day that Bitcoin survives to me is another day that the probability of Bitcoin succeeding and surviving long-term goes up. So we provide exposure to the assets through passive beta products, ETPs that are traded in Europe. Um, we also have active strategies that are focused on event-driven trading um, around some of the larger assets that have public markets where there is liquidity. And then really the component that to me is really interesting is thinking about where value creation will happen. 
In my view, value creation, we believed it would happen at the protocol layer. We're now questioning that assumption. I think a lot of value capture will happen at the application or business layer. And so that's where we're really looking at opportunities in the venture space. We're looking at opportunities in the mining or network infrastructure space to create new types of products and new types of exposure that allow investors to have exposure across all of the different parts of the ecosystem where not just value creation is happening, but where value capture is happening. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Melton. Um, shifting gears, we'll have Travis Kling on. Uh, Travis uh, spoke at uh, a recent event that we hosted called FO256 and provided a lot of enlightening information to the, uh, the folks there. Uh, his perspective is, uh, is fresh, is, is, is cut to the chase. Um, and so Travis, please tell us what your thoughts are on what's happening in the market. And obviously in relation to uh, your institutional background, uh, I think that's really important. Thanks, David. Appreciate the time. Um, yes, I'm the uh, founder, chief investment officer of Ikigai Asset Management. We're a long, short, multi-strat crypto hedge fund um, investing in, in crypto assets. We seek to generate attractive risk-adjusted returns through the execution of venture, venture stage crypto asset investments and in both systematic and fundamental liquid hedge fund strategies. Uh, I came from a traditional hedge fund investing background. Um, I was at a hedge fund in Chicago called Magnetar Capital for four and a half years doing uh, long short energy equities and non-controlled private equity and debt in the energy space and uh, uh, spent two and a half years as a portfolio manager at Point72 Steve Cohen's hedge fund in New York. I was running an, an energy and materials long short uh, equities portfolio there. I fell down the crypto rabbit hole about a year and a half ago. Um, Left Point72 last December to pursue crypto asset investing full time, moved out to Los Angeles and, and started EKI Asset Management with my partners. Um, so I, I, th I think for this first part, I just want to I'll, I'll just try and spend maybe two, three minutes talking about uh, how we got here um, just on a short term basis. Like, you know, the, the title of this is making sense of, of the volatility. So just month to date how we got to this volatility and then, and then maybe we can circle back around afterwards and talk about um, where I think this thing uh, might be going. So BTC and, and, and the broader crypto market uh, was down 40 something percent uh, on the month uh, before bouncing um, a little over 10% over the last couple of days. Um, the, the initial genesis of, of that break after BTC had held the, the um, high 5,000 range um, since March of this year. Uh, the initial break lower was based on um, a lot of, um, I would say, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt coming out of the Bitcoin Cash fork. And specifically, um, one of the leaders of one of the forks, this guy named Craig Wright, um, was uh, uh, he, he, he sent out a tweet um, talking about uh, the price of Bitcoin going to a thousand that crashed the market. Um, there, a narrative began to be uh, uh, built up around uh, this Bitcoin cash fork situa situation with the concept of, of uh, a hash war uh, with miners um, um, pulling in um, uh, different sides of the, of, of the fork, uh, pulling in rented hash power and selling down BTC into public markets uh, to fund this hash war. 
and um, uh, Jihan Wu, who's a guy who runs uh, Bitmain, that's on the uh, the uh, ABC side of Bitcoin Cash fork. Uh, a narrative started to get traction around him potentially trying to uh, squeeze other miners out of business um, uh, as they had been sitting on inventory for the last couple months and had not been selling that inventory um, because volumes on exchange had been anemic. And um, uh, a lot, I would say a lot of, uh, of opaqueness to the Bitcoin cash situation, a lot of smoke around what that is a little hard to parse through how much is reality versus um, uh, how much is conjecture. But uh, um, that initial situation was enough to kind of break a very big technical level for um, uh, uh, BTC. And then, uh, and then you started getting traction around um, SEC enforcement actions with Paragon and Airfox uh, that added a, a whole new layer uh, to the potential to see uh, forced ICO treasury selling to pay for um, refunds to investors uh, in U.S. dollars in ICOs that were actually sales of unregistered securities earlier this year and in 2017. That narrative caught on uh, quite quick, and you, you got into a situation where you started to see um, kind of a death spiral with the potential for um, fund redemptions uh, associated with the year-to-date uh, price drop and um, uh, uh, some of this uh, ICO forced selling. And then I think you sprinkle on top of that um, some pretty real stress in the traditional asset classes um, uh, that, that, that has been taking a toll as well, too. And, and that in aggregate kind of uh, brings us to where we are today. Thank you, Travis. Uh, we'll dig deeper into uh, what you and Nikhil and Melton just talked about. David Greider, if you can uh, possibly jump in and, and give your five minutes of uh, kind of the macro, what you're seeing, what you're what you think is happening out there, we would appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Yeah, as David mentioned, my name is David Greider. I am a partner and also the head of research at a Enigma Capital. Um, Enigma is an actively managed, uh, fundamentally focused, long short crypto hedge fund. Um, we predominantly combined venture capital and hedge fund investing styles to address the unique nature of this crypto market. Uh, we will invest in a combination of the crypto assets themselves and also make investments in public and private companies that support uh, the infrastructure of the space. So uh, before, before I dive into some of the you know, more nitty gritty, I kind of just want to back up and talk um, economics as it relates to uh, this asset class itself, um, because I actually think about crypto more in the sense that it's not necessarily a new asset class as much as it's more like an emerging economy in the way that it seems to behave. Um, because when I first got into the space um, and I was looking at uh, these assets, um, seemingly very, very intangible, uh, as, as I'm sure many of you are familiar with thinking, how, how can something like Bitcoin have value um, or any of these other co coins or currencies or tokens um, and thinking about the economics behind what, what actually gives them the value? And uh, that was kind of where I first started uh, my um, entry into the space because I came from a very fundamental background of, you know, banking, traditional Wall Street, uh, finance, uh, CFA evaluation, and spent a lot of time first getting in and understanding what these things really were. And I think there's a lot of um, misnomers about what is crypto first. And I just want to quickly describe a couple buckets, right, because they're not all the same thing. There's crypto commodities that are monetary commodities like Bitcoin that are mineable and they're proof of work currencies. And then there's other types of 
crypto assets that maybe have more equity-like features. Um, I will disagree with Melton slightly and say that there is um, a number of crypto assets that actually have uh, DCF-like features, like Ripple, for example, um, not mineable, but does burn uh, a piece of their token every time you do transactions. So there's equity-like features in the share buyback there. Um, some of these other ones exhibit more features like debt uh, or even derivatives for some of these things like the stable coins. So, you know, with that in mind, I think it's important to focus on um, what the underlying drivers are of this um, this new emerging digital economy that we're seeing. And I think that the crypto space tends to move in these waves historically um, that are kind of like business cycles or big like macro money cycles um, that you'd see in a traditional economy. And they really seem to follow what Bitcoin does overall. Um, you know, and that makes sense because it's the oldest, the biggest, the largest, 50% of the market cap and has been much greater before of all the assets. Um, but these proof of work mineable cryptocurrencies, I call these the monetary commodities, um, they tend to influence effectively asset valuations across the entire space. And if you look back over the history of uh, Bitcoin and crypto, um, I think I can safely say today that uh, Bitcoin is not dead after these sell-offs because um, we're all here and we're all talking about it. And if you look back into the early days of crypto, as was alluded to before, if you look back in 2011, 2012, uh, 2013, 2014, you saw um, very serious uh, waves of run-ups in, in the macro valuation of, of the overall asset classes and Bitcoin in particular, and significant crashes along with that as well. So um, we've been through these cycles before, these money cycles. I consider those uh, to be like medium-term money cycles, and then um, they tend to combine to you know form to uh, a longer-term money cycle and a valuation increase of the overall asset class. So I think. Looking back at that, understanding how do you fundamentally assess um, how these assets move and why they move economically, it's very important. We put a lot of emphasis when it comes to these monetary commodities like Bitcoin on the mining, and we think that's actually the key underlying component to where these assets get their value. Um, we focus a lot on that because, just to provide an analogy, you have to do all this hashing and all of these computations. You, you really rip up a dollar every time you want to mint a Bitcoin. Um, so. That puts a behavioral floor and an economic value that people assign in real world value to these assets. And we focus a lot on um, how many dollars effectively have been ripped up into the system and what, what we think fundamentally um, the incentives are for folks to, um, you know, buy or sell at any given price. So looking back at 2017, 2018, and, and seeing the monumentous run we've had, um, you know, people would call it a speculative wave. Uh, but I think it's actually very important to the fundamentals of crypto to have this uh, volatility uh, as it is right now. Because if you look at the asset class, um, especially the monetary ones that are purporting to be currencies in the future, people will say volatility is bad for them. No one uses them. Um, it's for investment. But, but what you really need is you need a, a large distribution of holders. You need a lot of people to own the asset class before it can really become uh, a stable medium of exchange and can reach its real TAM of, you know, of being a currency that is an option viably for people in, um, you know, let's call it less, uh, you know, poorly governed uh, jurisdictions. So, you know, you, you have to get the hands in the holders, and you have to get the adoption, you have to get the widespread usage, and you have to get the store of value. And that store of value, we think, comes um, as you have these big waves of new users that get onboarded through these cycles, um, these macro money cycles of volatility. And it's actually, in the long term, very healthy for the asset class to have that. Because what happens is you onboard a bunch of new people who are interested, who are looking at the asset class, um, you know, and then they 
put a little bit of money in, they get interested, they learn more. Um, you, then as you go through these trough periods that we think we're in now, um, in the middle of these money cycles, you know, they start to deploy more capital um, and then people, you know, become more accustomed and enter the space further. So, you know, with that in mind, I think volatility is actually pretty key to the asset class. And I can discuss more on the economics of, of why, but I'll shut up with my five minutes from there. Thanks. Thank you, David. Uh, to wrap up the macro, uh, Ariana Simpson, um, please uh, let us know what you're thinking, what you've been seeing as an investor in the space over the last few years. Sure. Thank you, David. Um, yes, as, as mentioned, my name is Ariana Simpson, and a, I run a fund called Autonomous Partners. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, uh, it's been interesting to see this cycle uh, and the way that it's kind of mirroring what we saw a few years ago uh, when there was kind of the, the bear market in 2014 and 15. Um, you know, I will say the technology really fundamentally remains unchanged. So I think what we're seeing overall in the market is more a reflection of the emotion and psychology of investors um, that is certainly very pronounced in, in crypto. The swings are obviously very severe and something that, um, you know, can, can be a little alarming if, particularly if this is the first time you're experiencing it. But in general, um, I think at the end of the day, the, the underlying technology is still there. Um, and as, as was mentioned previously, I really think that these cycles are critical to garnering attention and bringing talent into the space. Um, and so, you know, the, the ecosystem is really an order of magnitude at least larger and significantly more robust than it was a few years ago. Um, you know, that said, I think it's important uh, at this point to really maintain something more of a VC type lens uh, in some ways, because at the end of the day, while, you know, we see these these tokens and coins being treated uh, in some ways as public equities in the sense that there's liquidity and stuff like that, the underlying technology is really more similar to that of what you would expect to see in a seed stage um, VC backed company. And so maintaining a little bit of perspective on, uh, you know, from a time horizon perspective is, is I think, critical. Um, I don't think you can really expect to have a market that grows 33x like the crypto space did last year without some serious uh, corrections. And so maintaining the ability to zoom out, uh, I think, is, is pretty, pretty necessary. Um, I would also say that, you know, the, the cycle is not at all surprising. You know, we've seen several of these previously. And if you uh, are familiar with Carlotta Perez's work, um, she has a great uh, book called Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, in which she analyzes um, basically the, the way in which major technologies evolve. Um, and there's a, a point in which there's kind of a fundamental decoupling between the technology and the prices, because um, as investors or speculators, you know, realize that there's an opportunity to make money here, um, the space just becomes overcapitalized. And then there's a period of, of bust in which um, the technology actually has time to catch up uh, to where the expectations and the valuations were. Um, and that, you know, is eventually uh, brought to parity. And so that's when you enter kind of what she refers to as the golden age of maturity of technology. And this is something that she mapped for, um, you know, the dot com as well as, um, you know, the industrial revolution. So this is not something that's really unique to crypto. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, this is neither something to uh, be surprised by nor something to consider too alarming. If you zoom out on the chart, um, you know, Bitcoin and, and the entire crypto space, frankly, 
um, obviously with, with some notable exceptions. There's a lot of, of uh, coins that really have no reason to exist, but where there is meaningful um, progress being made, they're still some of the best performing assets in, you know, the, the history of investing uh, in terms of returns if you're zooming out to, you know, say a three or five year time horizon. Um, so, yeah, you know, I expect that this that this is going to be like the others right now to me feels like a great time to to be investing. And I will caveat that by saying that, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that that prices couldn't go potentially significantly lower from from here. Um, but at the same time, again, if, you, if you're thinking about it on a three to five to 10 year time horizon, um, I think it's, it's a great time to get involved. Thank you, Ariana. Um, we're going to shift to some questions now. Um, and the first one goes to Meltem. Um, in your Medium article, you talked about the start of capitulation. Um, maybe you can tell us because, you know, on social media and in conversations, uh, consensus invest has been going on here in New York uh, the last few days. You know, we've all been, you know, talking. Have, have we seen, have we witnessed capitulation? Has the weak hand finally given up? Maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're thinking, what you're seeing in terms of capitulation and how that uh, relates to potential markets going forward. I, I would love to talk about that. And um, yesterday at Consensus Invest, just to provide some color to those who weren't there, I actually, um, so my firm, CoinShares, we had a meeting room at the event and I didn't go to any of the, the talks. I don't think anything new was really said, um, but we had a bunch of people come by and I was recording just short interviews with all sorts of different people from across the crypto world, people I've known for the last five years and five business models ago who are running some of the world's largest speculative trading platforms um, to people who are newer to the space, come from legacy finance and are focusing on, you know, U.S. regulated products and infrastructure. So really broad spectrum. And the general atmosphere that I sensed is people were still optimistic. People are not yet cutting budgets. People are not yet firing. People are not yet downsizing. And I think that to me is a sign that we're not close to the bottom yet. Um, I think, you know, as Ariana alluded to, I also am a big fan of Carlotta Perez's work. And a lot of what I write about and talk about and think about is some of these broader themes and trends that play out anytime there's a new technology that is disruptive, challenging, changes paradigms, potentially changes business models. At the end of the day, I think the fundamental question is, um, and I actually disagree with David on some of his comments around tokens. A lot of these tokens that launched, the economic models they had were proven wrong. That hypothesis has been proven wrong. And I know the time horizon we've been doing is fairly short, 12 to 18 months for many of these newer assets. But ultimately, I think um, the way I view investing as a seed stage investor, which I've been doing for the last four years across 150 different companies in this industry, as well as some protocols and platforms that were capitalized through this token fundraising mechanism, is at the end of the day, there are fundamental rules about how balance sheets and capital structures work. And if you don't have a business model or product or service that people want to use, really, what do you have? And I think we still aren't answering some of these fundamental questions about, well, what makes something like EOS worth $3 billion. Again, there may be a lot of value that's created on top of the pl platform, but arguably some of the ideas that people have around that, where that value accrual is happening, um, we're not really addressing the fundamental challenges. The protocol's not a business. And that doesn't mean that there isn't value in investing in the assets themselves, but I think there is a question around how and where value accrual happens what the new metrics are that we need to look at beyond price. And there's great work that's been done around 
total addressable market or TAN, which David referred to and other measures and metrics you could use to look at utilization, but I don't think we're fully at capitulation yet. People are still feeling optimistic. People think this recent 10% recovery is an indication that we're on the way back up, and I don't believe it is. In 2015, um, after the big last run-up, we had 12 to 16 months of a sustained $200 Bitcoin price environment. And that really was the phase during which a lot of the newer technology that fueled the next wave of speculative investing was built. And so I do think we're gonna see the assets continue to trade sideways for a while. We may see um, you know, price movements within the 10 to 50% range, which is actually quite low in terms of volatility for the crypto asset class. And looking at the things and some of the macro market, <laughs> you know, there's lots of volatility there right now. So your traditional momentum investors aren't necessarily looking to crypto to get that juice anymore. So I, I think what we will see is more and more businesses are gonna have to face harsh realities in 2019. Investors are going to start asking difficult questions. But here's the thing we haven't talked about yet. All of these ICOs and projects and protocols that were funded at astronomical valuations via these legal contracts called SAFs, which entitle investors to nothing. You don't get equity. You don't have any sort of debt structure. You have nothing. Those things are still being carried by a bunch of these crypto funds and a bunch of venture funds, and by the way, traditional hedge funds who wanted to get into the game, who got FOMO or fear of missing out, and they invested in things at crazy valuations. They're going to have to start to mark these things as zeros on their balance sheets or below cost, right? Right now, people are marking things at cost or adding even a markup in some cases, which I think is a dangerous game to play. I think once that reality sets in that some of these assets are not going to succeed, again, to Ariadne's point, a lot of this token investing was highly speculative early tech investing, but people invested in it as though it were a proven asset class. And I just don't think that the majority of the world is even convinced that crypto is an asset class yet. We operate in a tiny, tiny microcosm. It's a $120 billion market. Um, there are companies who have cash, spare cash on their balance sheets, double or treble that amount. So I really think um, this idea that institutional investors are going to start buying these things directly is a little bit early. Um, we made some mistakes. We had some assumptions that were maybe being proven wrong and maybe some that are going to be proven right. But I do think that as reality sets in, as people go back to the fundamentals of how businesses operate, you pay your employees in cash. You pay your costs in cash. You pay your lawyers in cash. And when you don't have cash because the assets on your balance sheet, whether it's the tokens you have in your treasury or the bank, the currency you printed yourself, which is really what Ripple has with XRP, they printed money out of thin air in the form of a, a token. And I'm not saying that can't be a viable model, but let's just call it what it is. And I think, again, when those assets decline in price, when the Ether and the Bitcoin they hold on their balance sheet declines in price, and they're having to sell these things to fund operations, to pay their tax bills, to pay real-world liabilities, you're going to start to see reality set in. And people are going to realize a lot of this activity is unsustainable without a business model. And so what we need to do is really look critically at what business model will work. And I'll share one final data point and then I'll stop. I know I've talked a lot. One of the pieces I put out, um, one of the pieces of analysis that I put into this post I wrote um, that David referenced at the start of this call, was just looking at where value accrual has occurred. So there are only three protocols, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ripple, XRP, that are worth more than the speculative trading businesses built to facilitate effectively speculation and gambling. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There are a lot of industries, including the internet, that were funded by and fueled by um, gambling and other sort of gray market activity. And that's 
not a bad thing. Typically, innovation happens when people have problems they can't solve using the existing infrastructure and technology. And so I think we've seen crypto, you know, it's, it's a lot of it's driven by speculation and people who want to play the speculative game. There are four companies. Um, Coinbase, valued at $8 billion, has hundreds of millions in cash. We have Circle, valued at $3 billion, has several hundred million in cash. You have um, Bitmax, which is a derivative trading platform. People will say it's unregulated. It's not. It's regulated in a jurisdiction that is not the U.S., and it complies with local rules and regulations, and that's a $10 billion business. And then most stunningly, Binance, which people talk about quite a bit, is a business um, that's sprung up over the last two years, raised virtually no venture capital, just like BitMEX. BitMEX has also raised no venture capital. And that business is, you know, an eight to $10 billion business that generates a lot of cash. And so I think the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we move beyond speculative trading into actually utilizing these things to create business models that are sustainable. And I don't think we've arrived at the right answer. There are a lot of great ideas, but I think we all have to be a bit pragmatic and temper our expectations because growth takes time. And so where I'm looking over the short to medium term is assets um, and protocols that have proven governance models and businesses that have business models that make sense. Thank you, Milton. That was a uh, very in-depth uh, conversation on capitulation and I probably need a drink after that. Um, Moving forward, um, there's been some questions coming in from folks, and I think uh, this leads into a question. Uh, there's going to be a question to Travis and then a question to Nikhil. So, Travis, there's been uh, a few questions about some of the exchanges and some of the potential, quote unquote, manipulation that has existed in the market. Um, and I know that you wanted to touch a little bit maybe on some of the DOJ investigations of uh, Tether and Bitfinex. Can you talk to us about what you think about what's happening out there in terms of price manipulation? Is Bitmain the cause of the recent downturn in, in Bitcoin? What do you think is going on out there? Uh, so, 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 so earlier tried to touch on uh, the kind of uh, cumulative, uh, you know, you know, handful of different factors that in aggregate got us to where we are today on a on a go forward basis. Um, I think uh, Clayton, the head of the SEC, Jay Clayton, um, he's uh, had a fireside chat yesterday at Consensus Invest. He was on CNBC. Um, it, 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 you know, appears to be that consistently, uh, as uh, Bitcoin ETFs have uh, uh, not been approved, um, uh, the reasoning behind that has been. Um, uh, cited numerous times that uh, the SEC needs to protect retail investors from potential price manipulation. And uh, when you have so much volume that occurs on exchanges that are outside of the regulatory jurisdiction of the United States, uh, of the SEC, then uh, and, and, and those exchanges have such an influence on the price of Bitcoin as a whole, then it's difficult for um, the SEC to feel comfortable that, that uh, U.S. retail investors are, are protected from that manipulation. Um, uh, the launch of BACT um, may be a way to combat that. Um, just in the last week, you had three of the largest OTC desks come together to start um, uh, posting an OTC Bitcoin price. That may be a manner in which um, uh, the SEC can get comfort around, you know, what an quote-unquote unmanipulated price of, of of bitcoin is or, or a price that 
that the SEC feels safe exposing um, uh, U.S. retail investors to via a, a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, also, you, you saw that NASDAQ is, is, uh, has announced that they're launching a BTC future product as well, too. Uh, details to come on that. Um, so I, I think with the current market structure, with so much volume uh, in crypto as a whole happening, you know, both in Bitcoin and down market cap from Bitcoin, um, happening on uh, exchanges that are either unregulated or regulated outside of um, uh, the jurisdiction of, of the United States, it, it just remains to be seen whether or not that is a market structure that's going to be able to persist into you know what 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 we at ikigai internally are calling you know likely a new era um we we think that there's a pretty good chance that as we sit here today you're seeing kind of the, the closing of of one big chapter of uh of this uh, uh, uh crypto saga that is going to be a, a couple decades to play out and, and the beginning of a new one and um uh, it remains to be seen whether or not the BitMEXs of the world, the Binance's of the world, um, the various different Asian exchanges um, are going to be uh, part of, of this next uh, chapter and, and, and in what you know, type, type of way. Thank you, Travis. Uh, we'll, we'll touch base on a few of those uh, topics again shortly. Uh, the question for Nikhil. Um, Nikhil, I, I, I've known you as someone who has invested in... Uh, Dare I call it moonshots? Uh, you had a, a, a podcast with Patrick a few months ago, um, and uh, your experience at SoftBank and the other investments you've made and some very big ideas. Um, so the question for you is, you know, relative to say clean tech or other investments that have happened or become trendy, dare I say, in the last you know decade or so, how would you compare, you know, crypto? Uh, crypto assets to some of the other investments that have become trendy, like clean tech over the last few years? Sure, thanks. Um, so I have had the fortune of investing in companies that have gotten relatively large and then and accidentally investing into crypto relatively early. Um, my partners or I were um, you know, in early rounds of Coinbase and, um, and Ripple and a handful of those things. But the, the truth of the matter was, if you got into crypto early, it was largely lucky. Um, especially on the equity uh, side. Good examples from Meltem's um, uh, stories were uh, Binance and BitMEX, uh, which you know no one was able to invest in, unfortunately. Um, and, and Coinbase is a great example, but uh, you know, if you were in the Series A, that was the end of 2013, 2014, when everyone would have called you crazy and you would have been way ahead of the time if you had a portfolio of early investments in the VAT sector. So, um, the point is, for, for my approach, investing in moonshots, a little bit of my background, I was at SoftBank for a long time, a private investor, and then got into crypto. Most of my team are all Goldman alums, uh, traders, big hedge fund uh, investors, and we're backed by large Japanese financial institutions and uh, some global macro uh, household hedge fund names. So basically, we're trying to take institutional approaches to crypto investing, and that includes venture capital, but it's largely focused on short-term uh, quantitative approaches. The difference between what I've done before and what we're doing now is there's really a business model difference between crypto investing and uh, early stage moonshots. And the difference is there's only one way to make money in crypto today, and that's in trading. All the big businesses are trading businesses. All the other business models have uh, been unproven. 
Whereas in other sectors, you can take a look at clean tech and you can say, well, these large companies, there's these approaches, you can convert X into Y in order to make uh, a clear revenue. There's buyers out there, um, you know, in clean tech, in space, in energy, in lots of other sectors that we all look, have looked at in the past, uh, more so than today. Uh, there's large publicly traded Fortune 100 companies that are willing to spend and you've got multiples of their own business in order to know what they're going, how much they're willing to spend. In this market, it's really difficult to value the companies. And I can tell you that the valuations, I'm sure everyone on the table, particularly Ariana, who's you know deep in venture, and I think some, there's another, uh, someone else on the call as well that's a, you know primarily a venture focus. The valuations you saw earlier this year were sky high compared to where they are now. Um, that doesn't mean there's great companies and great value to be had, that means the business models haven't been proven and we were in a hype cycle. Now, I think, and for probably the foreseeable future, meaning months to one to two years, I still think that trading is the best strategy in order to have the best risk reward return uh, relative to moonshot investing within this sector. Thanks, Nikhil. Um, Ariana was mentioned and uh, actually one of the questions that have come in, uh, I'll address to Ariana. So, you uh, have been focusing on you know, what we would define as infrastructure, and many people would say that actually infrastructure, crypto infrastructure, has become um, very well pronounced and talked about over the last few months. You know, some people believe that we may have put the, uh, the carriage before the horse. And so what do you see, you know, what do you see as the next big wave? Do you see it as the infrastructure company, the BitGo's, the, the custodies, the, the interoperability companies out there? How do you see, are they going to be the next big wave or is it going to be the Coinbase's and the circles of the world that have a fair amount of uh, cash on their balance sheets? Um, yeah, thanks, David. Um, so, you know, Meltem has, has been making this point publicly for a while and I completely agree that, um, you know, the opportunity set right now in the next, like, I would say three to five years really look, uh, to me, like most of the returns are going to be generated by platforms, protocols, things that basically enable um, financial investment and speculation. Um, and, you know, we could moralize on whether that's good or bad or, you know, and, and at the end of the day, eventually the space is going to really need to deliver on the promise of the technology uh, at major scale in order for uh, those values to be sustained. But in the meantime, you know, exchanges, businesses like that are making money on the way up and they're making money on the way down. Um, you know, and, and so I've, I've seen that play out over the last few years. And so that's why that uh, that infrastructure piece is a big uh, component of, of my investment strategy. Um, and I would also add that um, all infrastructure is not created equal from a returns perspective. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation in the space recently around, uh, you know, value creation versus value capture and um, some of the infrastructure that, um, you know, I think is, is going to be instrumental for the space in my view, will actually not end up, uh, you know, capturing a lot of value. And I'm talking about things like scalability solutions and potentially even some of the underlying uh, base layer protocols may not be the parts of the stack that end up capturing the most value. Um, so where I see a lot of the opportunity set in the infrastructure camp is really in the um, in the financial infrastructure uh, realm. And you know, like I mentioned, that that is basically any kind of platform or instrument that enables um, investors to participate in, in the new asset class um, and folks who are, are speculating. Um, and so, you know, again, you, you could hypothesize on whether that's good or bad, um, but I think at the end of the day, that's true. And that's where a lot of the returns are gonna be seen. Um, and so, yeah, that certainly includes companies like 
Coinbase, like Circle, um, but it's also going to include a lot of, of new entrants. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just kind of getting started in that camp because even the biggest companies in the space are still relatively small, uh, you know, if you, if you consider it at a global level. And so we're just in the beginning of that phase. I mean, I, I would actually go so far as to say it's neither good nor bad. It's absolutely fantastic that speculative trading is driving innovation uh, because it's driving profits, it's driving talent, it's driving attention. These are the things you need in order to bring people to the, the table of all different types of disciplines. That's engineering talent, that's ingenuity, that's uh, folks that are not just trying to figure out the best way to trade cryptos, but also to create new cryptos to trade to have derivative products, to basically be inside um, and work with the large banks that ultimately need to appreciate cryptocurrencies as something before they're willing to spend millions of dollars on the application um, that is in its current infancy and being built today. Yeah, and I, I think, frankly, um, you know, in some ways, a lot of these uh, financial products are kind of antithetical to a lot of the original ethos that was at the basis of the creation of Bitcoin and the entire crypto market. Um, but again, you know, in order, it's kind of this, uh, this double-edged sword where on the one hand, you really need adoption by traditional financial institutions um, and kind of mainstream uh, in order for it to win and be something that's actually meaningful. But on the other hand, um, you know, there are certain, certain compromises and trade-offs that have to come with that. And so, um, you know, my perspective, frankly, is that at this point, a lot of the traditional financial world is catching on to the fact that this is a new set of products that they can sell. Um, and, you know, that's going to be something that is extensively marketed to customers. And that can be retail, but it can also obviously be uh, endowments and institutions and whoever else. Um, and so I think that's going to be one of the biggest drivers of growth in the space. And, you know, right now there's a lot of uncertainty just because prices have come down so far. But I think um, it's pretty clear what the trajectory is at this point. And so, um, you know, the, a lot of the upside, I think, will, will be coming from that in the next couple of years. Thank you, guys. Um, I remember, uh, to all that are listening, you have the, the ability to uh, ask questions. As you notice, I've been uh, putting in those questions throughout the last few uh, 30 minutes here. Uh, so please send them in. We have about another 12 minutes left to uh, talk with these folks. Uh, the question to David Greider, you've been focusing a lot on valuation. And um, what do you think going forward? We've been uh, playing with different models, you know, Chris Berninsky's model, Hayes, um, and some of the other models that have been uh, put forth. What do you think the future of valuation for crypto assets is? Yeah, I think um, back, back to the original point, I think the future for any particular crypto asset depends on the economics of it. Um, so again, if it's, you know, a currency, commodity currency like Bitcoin versus if it's more equity like, like Ripple or like uh, Binance token, right? Because those have effective share buybacks those are effective DCFs in the way that, you know, coins are uh, taken out of the market and destroyed and, um, you know, cash flows are delivered to users uh, versus the commodity-like ones um, that people probably should spend the most time on, which is, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, these types of assets. Um, because I do agree with Meltzum that, you know, a lot of the token models that were um, issued over the last year uh, really were illegal securities with very poor um, economic rights and, and, and almost no uh, governance at all. Um, but there, there is some, 
for example, Binance, which she did mention, um, has grown to be a very large, um, a very large tokenized uh, legal security, effectively, given the, the size of the exchange and the uh, dividend that gets paid back, effective dividend to uh, the holders. So um, I spent a lot of time when looking at Bitcoin um, and examining kind of where we are on a relative basis, looking at the mining sunk costs, uh, cumulative mining sunk costs as it relates to um, the overall market cap relative to that. And what that effectively means is, again, back to, you know, having ripped up um, a dollar to produce these, um, it's effectively how much profit's in the system. And I think that determines pretty heavily, um, you know, holders' uh, propensity to either sell um, their coins or to hold the weight to um, potentially cash out at different prices, higher prices, hopefully. Um, so I think that that kind of uh, influences the supply side dynamics of this uh, commodity like asset class very heavily. Um, so I spend a lot of time focusing on, you know, relative value across different crypto assets, thinking about which ones um, are closest to what I think is uh, effectively a fundamental uh, economic behavioral floor that gets created, uh, you know, by uh, these network incentives um, that are produced from mining. Um, and, and figuring out kind of what that means for um, overall valuations in the space. Um, because, you know, as people mentioned earlier, um, back to the VC uh, funding um, and other ICO funding that occurred, right, earlier in the year, it, 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 back to like, it's like a business cycle again. Like when the economy is very hot, um, valuations for assets are very high, Bitcoin in particular, right, that drives the overall valuations within the space. Um, and, you know, we're in this recessionary period now in the crypto space. Um, you know, wherein we are having a reset. I mean, this is the great reset um, of 2018 for crypto. And, you know, we've seen these resets before. We saw it in 2013. Um, we saw it in 20, um, 2011. Now, I think the real question for folks is, is this the reset of 2013 or is it the reset of 2015? Wherein it's much longer, much deeper. Um, and it very well may be much longer and much deeper because, um, you know, I think to Melton's point, in terms of capitulation, you're seeing capitulation in some interesting places now. Um, for example, a number of miners are going out of business right now. Very uh, wide uh, groups in China, um, heavily reported, you're seeing uh, these ASIC miners just throwing their hardware on the streets, potentially capitulating their coins. Um, and I think that, you know, this type of activity, you know, as, as we're in this bear market, these guys are no longer profitable. Um, I think that that cleans out the space a lot. I think it's almost... Um, also driven back to one point that Travis was discussing, um, not necessarily manipulation, but, um, you know, I have a thesis around um, the movement in the space being heavily influenced by the aggregate activities of some of the larger miners, um, almost in a uh, mechanism similar to uh, OPEC, you know, as it relates to oil, right? That's another commodity, uh, this being a digital commodity, um, and some large miners having a very large share of influence let's just say over the industry and i think that these types of um activities that are um you know the way in which they choose to hold accumulate coins buy or sell them it, it it affects the overall volatility of the space and i think they're a big influence back to the volatility of it um and that's why i spend a lot of time focusing there thank you david um i'm gonna open up the question to anyone who wants to answer so 
We just saw uh, David Sachs announce that Harbor uh, has done a deal for a, uh, I believe, a building. We saw Templum. Is the, you know, is 19 going to see more security token offerings? Are we going to tokenize the world in 19? Um, or is that still something that needs to uh, become more mature? And that could be, anyone can answer that question if they like. I'll jump in. Sorry. I have strong opinions on security tokens. Um, there is a ton of supply. People want liquidity for assets that no one wants. Just because something is issued as a security via a regulated or semi-regulated route doesn't make the asset less shitty, excuse my language. Um, a lot of the things that people want to tokenize are not desirable assets. And there's a lot of suppositions that people are making around liquidity and market infrastructure that doesn't exist yet. So while I do believe that uh, tokenizing, or really it's just digitizing assets, right? It's simply digitizing. It has nothing to do with crypto, crypto's network effects, or any of the fundamentals that support Bitcoin or these other protocols. It's just a digitization play. So I do think there's value in reforming and innovating market infrastructure and the form of some of these offerings, but it doesn't fundamentally create more demand for these assets, and it won't in the near term. So in my view, while it is exciting, and while I think there are asset classes like fine art and real estate that suffer from a lack of market infrastructure, a lack of price discovery mechanisms, et cetera, that could be aided by things like these digitized contracts in the form of a token that are more tradable, I just think it's way too premature. And I think a lot of people are going to find those business models are difficult to sustain without a constant cash infusion. In the last few months, I've already bailed out via a separate sort of distressed fund two businesses in the security token space because they run out of capital very quickly. So that's just my quick take. Yeah, hey, this is yeah. Travis. I would, I would go ahead and agree with that as well too. Um, <clears throat> crypto assets, you're trying to redefine the definition of an asset. Uh, tokenized securities, you're trying to redefine liquidity in the context of assets. And um, uh, the valuation frameworks that you put around securities tokens are established valuation frameworks. If you're going to go tokenize a bunch of real estate, well, we've been investing in real estate for a really long time. And there's a liquidity premium that uh, is available to assets if you can uh, you know, buy or sell it tomorrow versus not being able to do that. There's been a whole body of academic research that's been done around what a liquidity premium is worth to folks. It's somewhere around 20 to 30 percent. Um, uh, tokenized equity, for example, we've been valuing equity for a really long time, have very well established valuation methodologies to go about doing that. And so, um, you know, <laughs> tokenized securities, uh, you're looking to revolutionize Wall Street's back office, which is, uh, uh, you know, going to be nice to save them, you know, uh, 75 bips on their operating margin, but it's, it's not nearly as revolutionary as say, for example, a, a, a digital non-sovereign money or store of value. Good. Um, well, we've got three minutes left. What I'm just going to do is I'm going to ask a simple uh, question to uh, kind of finalize. And uh, again, these are not uh, financial. This is not financial advice, and uh, this should not be construed that way. But for 2019, uh, as we're heading into the end of 18, you know, we'll start with Nikhil as he started us off. Um, do you feel that we're going to continue to see more of a, you know, quote unquote capitulation, or do you think that things are going to start leveling out? Uh, well, we try to make money every day, regardless of the market goes up, down, left or right. Um, I would say uh, I can't comment on our specific um, uh, uh, products, um, 
but I can tell you the fundamentals that we're seeing are for the first time seeing some positivity as opposed to negativity for an ex quite an extended period of time. <clears throat> um, that doesn't mean we'll be up or down by the end of 2019, but it certainly says that I'm more optimistic than I was a month ago. Very good. Meltem? Sorry, I was on mute there. Um, I, my view is um, to continue to focus on gathering empirical evidence to support our assumptions around A, where value creation is happening, and B, where value capture is happening, because they're two very different things. I think one of the challenges with crypto is there's a lot of hype, and there are a lot of people who will tell you all sorts of hypey things, um, but you really have to go back to fundamentals. My belief is and has always been that we are on the cusp of creating new business models and new monetization models using this technology, whether it's in the assets themselves or whether it's in the protocols or businesses that are now able to be created with this new form of incentive structure. The problem is, is we haven't conducted enough experiments and gathered enough evidence to support, support some of the assumptions that people are making, which has led to an overcapitalization of ideas that are theoretically interesting, but fundamentally unproven. And if I view this um, as a mathematician and a scientist, <laughs> then I would say we uh, just need to go to a point where we are better able to actually gauge the success of certain experiments before plowing all of our capital and focusing all attention on things that may or may not be proven to work. So I think we just need to return to fundamentals and focus on where is value creation and how do we create products and experiences that people want to use and use consistently and pay for. Very good. Travis, uh, 30 seconds. Really hard to wrap this up in 30 seconds. Uh, so I'll just do this as quickly as possible. Uh, this crypto is an incredibly narrative driven market. Uh, markets are discounting mechanisms. Developed markets are very efficient at discounting new information. Crypto markets are not so efficient at that. Uh, you need to take a view on what's priced in here currently, uh, as this market does have a tendency to kind of jump on narratives and uh, force them into fruition, sometimes overtrade them. Uh, from a technical analysis perspective, BTC is a very broken chart right now. Um, uh, from a purely TA perspective, it looks like the price should go down meaningfully more from here. Um, I think the, the hype around uh, the back exchange being listed, uh, they pushed that out over a month. It remains to be seen what the demand for that uh, is going to be on the back end. I think Clayton um, uh, poured cold water on ETF hopium in the near term. Uh, I think the SEC is coming for um, dozens of more projects over the course of 2019. I think Clayton was pretty clear there as well. I think there's a narrative around, uh, 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 we saw an Ethereum uh, ICO uh, treasury fund death spiral narrative take Ethereum from $600 to $160 uh, this summer. I think there's a round two of that uh, narrative that is playing out in real time that we have not seen the, the, uh, the end to yet. Uh, fund redemptions into a liquid market. Uh, this only needs to be uh, slightly true, and this can be fund redemptions from LPs wanting their money back, or this can be fund refunds from uh, uh, being so far below your high water mark that you uh, essentially just uh, give up and give the money back to investors because you're not going to have an opportunity to make your performance fee. Um, that only needs to be a little bit true in this very illiquid market for it to have a, a pretty negative effect on prices. You have uh, tier two. OTC and uh, market maker desks that uh, were accumulating inventory in the low 6,000s for BTC. They're now meaningfully underwater and they haven't even opened up their business yet. Uh, there's potential selling there. You have uh, the DOJ investigation of, of uh, uh, Tether and Bitfinex. It remains to be seen uh, how that's going to work out. 
so I, I know that's a, that is a lot of negative news, uh, or, uh, but I will just say that um, as we sit here today, it is an enormously attractive time to invest in this asset class if you can manage through this volatility. Uh, if you are if you are um, set up in a position where um, you know if the market goes down meaningfully from here, uh, the types of investments that you have. Uh, uh, are not investments that are, are, are going to go down that much, but, um, you know, funds that can manage through volatility, then you're, you're set up to be perfectly positioned for an inevitable recovery. You just need that flexibility. And, and, and I want to be perfectly clear. This asset class is going to go create trillions of dollars worth of value. We are highly convicted in our bullishness. It's just that in the near term and, and or shorter timeframes, and specifically, it's it's highly uncertain and uh, and and actually unknowable at this current juncture. Thank you, Travis Ariana. I'll keep it super short. Um, I know we're over time a little bit. Um, you know, I, yeah, I agree with what Malcolm and and Travis said. At the end of the day, uh, it's never as good as it seems, and it's never as bad as it seems. And right now is a period in which people feel like it's really bad. Um, but historically, investors who have had the conviction um, and, frankly, the emotional stability to hold through these periods or to view it as an, a buying opportunity um, have done exceptionally well, again, over a multi-year uh, horizon. And so I think this time will be no different. Thank you. David, to finalize. Yeah, I think that um, Travis is right. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of news in the very short term. And I'm, you know, I don't want to be short-term speculative, but if I look over, you know, to 2019, I think this is the year that the markets um, move towards maturity here in terms of, you know, this asset class and this, this space. I mean, you have, you know, regulation getting more and more certainty every day. I think the space is getting cleaned out. You're seeing um, some of these infrastructure businesses around the space, miners, number of large miners going public this year, uh, custody businesses, banks supporting the exchange, the business going public this year in 2019. Um, going and these business models are being proven out. You're seeing, you know, more regulated exchanges, custody providers, the types of infrastructure that, um, you know, institutional investors need if they want to get comfortable investing in this space. Um, so I think that those are all positive over the long term. And I think that, you know, if, if, if I look out to 2019, I'm bullish over that time horizon. Great. Well, I wanted to thank you. I know we've run over four minutes. Thank you for everyone who has attended. Thank you so much to our presenters, to Melton, to Travis, to Ariana, to Nikhil, and to David. Um, your insights are incredibly valuable in this time. And uh, if anyone has any questions or would like to uh, continue the conversation, please reach out to me and uh, to fill, uh, facilitate. Everyone take care and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, guys. Thanks, David. Thank you. Bye-bye.